All right, so let's, uh, let's pray again before we open the scriptures. Lord, um, you are so good to us. We are amazed that the creator, the sustainer, the savior of the universe would care. But you've died for us. You shed your blood so we could be forgiven. You love it when we gather in your name and worship you and hear from your word. So we ask that you would meet with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been going through the, the, not the whole book of Psalms, but some selected Psalms from the book of Psalms. Last week, we covered about half the verses in Psalm 16, and then we stopped in the middle for a certain reason, and I'm going to I'm going to show you why we did that in just a second. But as kind of a review, let's take a look at the first seven verses again. So David is in some kind of trouble. We don't know what it is. He could be uh, being pursued by Saul. He's trying to kill him. Or his son Absalom was trying to kill him. But David's on the run. And here's his prayer. Preserve me, O God. Okay, that's his prayer. It's only four words. Uh, basically, it's save me. I'm in trouble, save me. And then the rest of the psalm, he focuses on God, which is interesting. I wonder how much in our prayers do we focus on the problem. Lord, I want to tell you about the problem, and so-and-so said this, and, and God's going, I know, I saw it. Now focus your heart on me, the one who will save you. Okay? He says, for in you I take Refuge, and I pointed out the fact that the difference between a believer and a non-believer is non-believers don't have a refuge to flee to. Believers, we have a refuge, a hiding place, one to, ride, uh, to run to. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Everything good in my life has come from you. I acknowledge you as my provider. As for the saints in the land, other believers, true believers, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I praise you that I'm not alone. I have my good friend Jonathan. I have uh, other believers who are loyal to you and me. Thank you that I'm not alone. Okay? The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings to these other gods of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. I'm not even going to name the names of those false gods. I'm going to run from them. I want nothing to do with them. You're the one true God. The Lord is my chosen portion. So now he's, he's going to use inheritance language. Okay, chosen portion, it's what you inherit. And he's going to say God is my inheritance. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will inherit you. Right? I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Thank you that you lead me and guide me and instruct me. Okay, so we covered that last week. So now... We're going to do something a little different. In the next 
verses, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, we're going to read those verses not from the Old Testament, but where they're repeated in the New Testament. In fact, 1,000 years after King David, this was written 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years later, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaches the first Christian sermon. Well, you could say Jesus preached the first Christian sermon, but after Jesus ascends into heaven, the first person to preach about Jesus is Peter. And it's the day of Pentecost, so there are thousands of Jewish people from all over the world gathered for this Jewish feast, and Peter preaches a sermon, and the center of the sermon is this quote from Psalm 16. Okay, So we're going to look at it in the context of Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. All right? So here's what happens. After Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he's with the apostles for 40 days, teaching them, probably showing them all the connections in the Old Testament, how they connect to who he is, okay? And then Jesus ascends into heaven, which means uh, he visibly floats up to heaven where he is now, okay? The apostles then are left. And Jesus says, just wait. And they wait 10 days. Probably in the same room they had the Last Supper in. And they're waiting. And then 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes upon them with power. And they start speaking in different languages, praising God in the same languages of all these, these, these Jews from different regions all over the world. They didn't know these languages. This was a miracle. Miracle translation going on here, praising God. And they go outside into the streets of Jerusalem where all these, these Jewish people are gathered. And first, the crowd, and it's a vast crowd, because 3,000 are going to get saved. That means there could have been 10, 20, 30,000 people there. Okay. So at first, the crowd goes, what are you guys, drunk? And Peter's response, kind of funny, goes, no, we're not drunk. It's, it's only 9 a.m. Um, so <laughs> you do the math there. Okay. So uh, he says, no, we're not drunk. This is the Holy Spirit. And a comes over the crowd and Peter starts to preach okay so I'm going to switch from Old Testament Psalm 16 to the New Testament Acts 2 and Peter begins by saying men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So he says, first of all, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. And God attested or validated, showed that Jesus was the Messiah. How? By doing signs and wonders and miracles. What what did Jesus do? Well, you know, he healed entire villages. He walked on water. He healed a man who had been born blind. He raised people from the dead. He cast out demons. And Peter says that shows that he was the chosen one, the Messiah. Okay? And what did you do? Here's what you did. Verse 23, and this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He was attested, he was shown to be the Messiah, and you killed him. But notice, he says, this was no accident. This was all according to, according to the definite plan of God. This was all predestined. Now you go, what about foreknowledge? How does this predestination and foreknowledge fit together? Well, don't think that foreknowledge here means that God looked into the future and, and, and looks and sees, oh, they're going to nail Jesus to a cross. I think I'll use that as a way to save mankind. No. Let's put it this way. His foreknowledge came from his definite plan. His definite plan didn't come from his foreknowledge. Okay. He had foreknowledge because he looked to his definite plan. Okay. But don't get bogged down by that. Don't get bogged down by that. Don't think that the fact that this was all predestined, don't think that lets Pilate and Caiaphas and Judas and Herod and the Romans and the Jewish leaders, and you and me off the hook. Here's another one of those cases where we have the sovereign plan of God, and we have our responsibility and how they come together is, a, is, is somewhat of a mystery, but look what he says. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. It was all God's plan. Don't think it It took God by surprise. Don't think it took Jesus by surprise. It was all predestined. And you killed him. Both of these are true. Okay? Now, the heart of Peter's sermon is to prove that Jesus, the awaited Messiah, his death and resurrection was all planned. And he does it by quoting from Psalm 16. 
His point is, see, this was prophesied by David a thousand years ago. Now, I, if I were preaching the first Christian sermon about the resurrection of Jesus, I would have spent a lot of time trying to show that he really did rise from the dead. In fact, you've heard me preach many sermons. How do we know he really rose from the dead? And there are all these theories that try to explain away the resurrection. There's the stolen body theory that the disciples stole the body. But they were a bunch of cowards. They all fled that night. There's the swoon theory that uh, Jesus didn't really die. He uh, just fainted. And they wrapped him in a hundred pounds of, of cloth and threw him in a tomb and put a thousand pound stone in front of it. And he woke up and he busted through the th- and he threw the stone away. And he uh, no, he didn't. It, there wasn't the swoon theory. There's the wrong tomb theory that uh, the that everybody went to the wrong tomb. But we know whose tomb it was. It was the, it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. So we could val- validate. But I would spend all these apologetic efforts trying to show that he really rose uh, from the dead. You know what Peter does? All he has to do is convince these Jews who believe the Old Testament is the word of God, and it is, he just has to show them that this is all according to plan. If he can convince them that this is not some strange thing, but it, it was prophesied in the Old Testament then he wins the argument, okay? So, here's, as we go on, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible, okay? It's not possible for him to be held by it, by death. Now, you would think he would say it's not possible to really kill God. No, it's not possible For him to be held in death. Why? For, because, David says concerning him, and now he's going to quote from Psalm 16. The reason death could not hold him is because it was prophesied that death could not hold him. So, let's take a look at Peter quoting Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption." You won't abandon my soul to Hades, to the grave. And, and that was true of David. David's soul didn't go to hell. It went to heaven. But what about his body? It did see corruption. So what, what, is, what is this talking about? You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David was promised 
in 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a descendant. God told him, a descendant of yours, a seed of yours, is going to sit on your throne. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. So David, as he writes this, knows that he is not the, the, the final king. There is going to be a descendant of his who will sit on his throne, but he's going to sit on his throne forever. And for that to work, this holy one, this descendant of his, he can't see corruption because how could he sit on the throne forever? Okay? So the argument is this wasn't David. This was talking about Jesus. So here's Peter himself. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, we don't know where Peter preached the sermon. He could have been on the steps of the temple and David's tomb was there in Jerusalem. He could have pointed to it and said, it's over there. We know David's bones, his, his flesh has already rotted and seen corruption. Okay, So his tomb is with us. So that wasn't David that David was writing about. Well, who was he writing about? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Okay, he, David knew that this descendant was going to sit on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And they believe him. They believe him. Why? Because he made the connection that what just happened before their, their eyes in the last 50 days was all prophesied in their holy scriptures. David's dead in the tomb. Psalm 16 couldn't be ultimately about David. Well, who was it about? Jesus. Right? Now, um, there is some evidence that Jews believed the human body started to decay on the fourth day after death. Okay? You remember when Lazarus dies, Jesus shows up, and Mary and Martha are kind of upset with him. They're like, hey, thanks for, thanks for showing up, but you could have been here a little earlier. Right? And Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha 
the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Okay. Now, I've perplexed over Luke 24:46. This is Jesus talking to the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And I've scoured the Old Testament. Where does it say that he must rise from the dead on the third day? Now, there is the reference to, to Jesus being like Jonah, who was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Um, but, but this seems to be more specific, that he'll, he'll rise. The Old Testament says he'll rise on the third day. I think if you put together the idea that the body begins to rot on the fourth day, and the Holy One will not see corruption or decay, that's where we get the idea that he must rise by or on the third day. All tucked away there in Psalm 16. Okay? Amazing. Now, um, I was going to cover some, some other uh, Old Testament prophecies. Um, in fact, I'll, just, I'll give you an assignment. Go home and read Psalm 22, which prophesies that his hands and his feet will be pierced. It actually prophesies that his clothes will be gambled for as he's dying. Okay? Psalm 22. But I do want to, before we have communion, take a look at Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53. So, so let's put it this way. Psalm, Psalm 16 prophesies that his body, that he will die and his body will not see decay. Psalm 22 prophesies how he will die. But it, they, these psalms don't tell us why he needed to die. So we turn to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah writing 700 years before the birth of Christ, writes about a servant of the Lord... And, you know, pronouns are a big thing these days, apparently. Pay attention to the pronouns. Psalm 50, 53, yes, it talks about his death, but it tells us as clearly as any New Testament passage why Jesus died. Okay, But he, this servant of the Lord, was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Sounds like he's, he's dying in the place of others, doesn't it? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all strayed. We've all sinned. We have turned everyone, unless you're thinking like, well, I'm not a sinner. No, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. So when he was on trial... Yes, he spoke when they put him under oath, but it says he didn't defend himself. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He went to his death in our place for our iniquities, for our sin. He didn't fight it. 53, verse 8, says he was cut off. Okay, so that means he died. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, the sins of God's people. And they made his grave. Oh, so he died and they put him in a grave. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man. Remember, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And where was he buried? In the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So this, again, not an accident. It was all a plan. When his soul makes an offering for guilt he's he's a substitutionary offering for our guilt he shall see his offspring oh he's going to be alive after he is dead and he's going to see his offspring there doesn't doesn't mean children well it means spiritual children okay he shall prolong his days god shall prolong his days The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand by, and here's the key, and here's our transition into communion. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, the Messiah, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That explains the atonement. That explains that he bears our iniquities on the cross and he accounts to us the status of being perfectly righteous. You know, a lot of people have a misunderstanding about Christianity. They say, oh, Christianity is, um, yep, God forgives you of your sins, but then to make it into heaven, you need to be made perfect. Well, if that's the good news, that's not very good news. I'm pretty far from that. 
okay? The good news is he paid for all of our sins, and, and when we trust in him, yes, he does start to clean us up. We can't remain the same, but I am accounted as perfectly righteous based on his righteousness, not based on my righteousness. So you can walk out of here trusting in the Lord, perfectly righteous in his sight, because you are given the gift of his righteousness. And that's some pretty good news, isn't it? So we are going to receive communion this morning. Communion is a time for us, yes, to confess our sins, to admit, yeah, I'm one of those sheep who has strayed, Lord. But then we take the bread and the cup, which reminds us of his broken body and his shed blood, and we take it in to ourselves as nourishment, okay? And it reminds us of his blood, his broken body, that makes us, makes us righteous, okay? It's the cross that makes us righteous. Communion reminds us of the cross.